The Girl of the Golden West was commissioned by and first performed at the Metropolitan Opera in New York on the 10th of December 1910 with two of the Met's greatest stars of that period, Enrico Caruso and Emmy Destin. And indeed, Puccini had created the leading roles of uh, Dick Johnson and Minnie for these two singers. Also in the cast was Pasquale Amato as Jack Grants, and indeed the Met's music director, Arturo Toscanini, was in the pit conducting. This was, interestingly, the first world premiere of an opera at the Met, and it was extraordinarily well received in the United States, notably in New York. Somehow, for some reason that maybe we shall talk about later, this has never been quite as popular as an opera, certainly amongst Puccini's other operas in Europe. Though in Germany it enjoyed a considerable popularity and there was a triumphant premiere at the Deutsche Opernhaus in Berlin in March 1913. The opera began, of course, as a play written for the theatre by David Belasco, who also produced and directed his own work. He wrote a four-act melodrama set in the Californian gold rush and it opened at the old Belasco Theatre on November the 14th, 1905 and ran for a remarkable 225 performances. Of course, it was Belasco who had supplied Puccini with the play that became the libretto for his previous opera, Madame Butterfly. What on earth was it, I wonder, and maybe we can unpack this too as we talk, that attracted Puccini to Mini after the sad story of Chocho San? Minnie, who was recently described in a program note as a pistol-packing, poker-playing, Bible-reading saloon over, presiding over the raucous polka bar. Um, in this production, and you can see images of the production behind, and there is tonight's uh, Minnie, uh, Susan Bullock. In this production, it's perhaps less uh, a, 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 a saloon than a temporary shed. Um, well, to help us to explore the Girl of the Golden West, we're joined, or we will be joined later, by Kerry Lynn Wilson, who conducts this new production for English National Opera. It's directed by Richard Jones. Also, we have our own mini to sing for us, Naomi Harvey, and she's covering the role of the woman of the Polka Saloon, and she's joined by Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. But first, we're joined by Roger Parker, Thurston Dart Professor of Music at King's College in the University of London. Will you please welcome Roger Parker? Roger, Puccini himself thought that The Girl of the Golden West was one of his greatest works. History, as I've suggested, hasn't been quite of the same point of view. Why? Oh, um, yes. It's easy to ask the hard question, isn't it? Uh, a variety of things, I think. Um, one of them, not to be underestimated, is that this opera doesn't have any big tunes. Uh, or rather, it has big tunes, but they la they're very short. Uh, they don't last long enough to be excerpted as concert arias. Um, so that vital bit of dissemination didn't happen. Uh, the other thing is that, particularly with Minni, uh, this is not written for your average Puccini soprano. Uh, it's very taxing role, very different. Birgit Nilsson used to sing it, you know, I rest my case. Uh, it, so there's that. Also, there's been problems with the ambience, with the American uh, setting. Occasionally people not... Uh, quite comfortable with Japan being exotic, but when America becomes exotic, people become uncomfortable with it. So all sorts of, all sorts of reasons, all sorts of reasons. As I said, it's written after Madame Butterfly, and that, of course, in a sense, looks at America, perhaps in a slightly sideways look from across the other side of the Pacific. And I wonder whether you think that at this stage, Puccini is beginning to think about what someone else will call the American century, about American identity. 
Well, um, yeah, it's complicated that. I mean, he loved the idea of America, um, mostly because it was the home of new technology. Um, this is a guy who loved every gadget imaginable. He had an automatic sprinkler in his garden, the first one in Italy. I'm not joking, really. He loved all sorts of, uh, all sorts of gadgets, and America was kind of associated with that, was associated with new technology. He loved automobiles. He loved uh, speedboats, all those kinds of things. And he associated America with that, uh, above all, uh, also with money. And he loved money. So those two things were very attractive. He didn't think of America as being a great civilized place, though. It's still regarded as sort of on the edge of civilization in some ways. And I think that results in some of the problematic aspects of the ambience. That's very interesting because you could argue that both Madame Butterfly and the Girl of the Golden West are set on frontiers. We're in the West for Girl of the Golden West, and of course we're in Japan at the other side of the Pacific, which America will gradually think of as being its own ocean through the 20th century. Yeah, but I think, I mean, the real difference is that um, <clears throat> in the case of Madame Butterfly, there is... Uh, an ancient civilization on the other side of the boundary, while in terms of the Wild West, it just is the Wild West out there. There isn't that, uh, there isn't that same uh, kind of exploration and respect for an alternative uh, uh, culture. Is, is this any version of the American West? Uh, or is, in fact, it's simply a European version? I mean, there are a number of key yeah. writers who write about America and the West who shape perceptions all the way from Bertolt Brecht, perhaps, to Puccini. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think uh, Puccini saw Buffalo Bill in Milan in the 1880s. <laughs> Now, Buffalo Bill was performing himself being uh, a, an American uh, warrior, you know, shooting down dozens of Native Americans every night uh, in a Milan uh, amphitheater. Um, by that stage, there were so many layers of mythology going into the whole idea of America that it's very difficult to, for anyone, let alone Puccini, I don't think wanted to, to try and get to what the real America was underneath that. It's just layers of accumulated myth at that time. Uh, and what do you think the appeal, not once but twice, of plays by David Belasco is? Oh, I, yeah, I think that's very clear. I mean, what we, uh, Puccini saw both of these plays. He saw the play of Madame Butterfly in London, and then he saw The Girl of the Golden West in, uh, in New York. And in both cases, he came out fundamentally enthused and thinking these would make an opera. He didn't understand barely a word of English. Right? So, hmm, what was he seeing? And what, was, what he was seeing in Belasco is this incredible stagecraft that he had. Um, the moment, I think, the, the moment in the second act where, I'm not giving anything away, I don't think, where the soprano and the tenor kiss for the first time, uh, there's two pages of stage directions in Belasco's play. Exactly, and it's not what they should be doing. It's uh, the, the door opens, snow and wind come in, uh, a chair falls over. There's a huge sort of proto-cinematic uh, kind of extravaganza that goes on, and that's what attracted Puccini. It's uh, not Belasco's, God knows, not Belasco's literary quality, but his quality as a dramatic, as a meta en scène.
And also the essentially melodramatic nature of Belasco's plots. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the I mean, this is the, you know this is not Ibsen we're talking about here. Um, but in terms of stagecraft, Belasco was really at the at the at the head of his theatrical generation. The libretto is by Guelfo Civinini and Carlo Zangarini. These are not Puccini's usual collaborators. No, um, no, they're not. And it's a very strange libretto. I mean, Puccini had worked with Giacosa and Ilica, this famous uh, duo who um, had uh, done Bohème and Tosca and Madame Butterfly. They had both, Giacosa died, and Ilica was, was moving out of production at this stage, so they weren't there anymore. It's interesting, they both, uh, well, Ilica referred to working with Puccini as the Puccini torture because um, uh, Puccini was constantly changing his mind and everything. Zangarini uh, just uh, got fed up with this in the end, just said, sorry, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm fed up with it. And they got someone else in, uh, Civinini, who wasn't much better. So in the end, it was a disastrous time for Puccini and a tremendously elongated uh, genesis. What were the kind of problems that Puccini felt not always necessarily actually, but encountered in the, the course of writing it. Well, um, uh, I, I think that generally what happened with Puccini is that he was very happy with first acts and he usually knew what was going on in the second act, but in the third act, things always got difficult. The same with Madame Butterfly, same with Tosca. The only one that didn't have a problem was Bohème because the last act virtually repeats the, the first act. Um, he always had a problem with finishing operas and in this case, it's, he had all sorts of trouble with the third act and it turns out to be a very unusual and very un. Puccinian third act, and of course, then with Turandot, he he died before finishing it. This this idea of how to end operas was always problematic for him. Do you think this is a psychological or or a technical problem for him? Um, I think it was a technical problem in the sense that I don't think Puccini's characters tend to develop very much as the opera goes on. Uh, they tend to be as they are. Things happen to them, but they don't change psychologically. And therefore, it was very difficult for him to find new music for them without repeating himself. That's why Bohème is the ideal opera, in a sense, because people just do exactly what they did at the beginning, at the end of... Uh, the end of La Boheme, and it's tragic rather than comic, and that works perfectly. But all the others, there's a problem. There. You talked at the very beginning about the way what we don't have here, the kind of arias that can be lifted to become concert showstoppers. Um, the thought occurs to me that maybe Puccini is trying to write a different kind of opera here. He's already beginning to push the form slightly? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting with most of Puccini's most famous tunes uh, tended to get added later in the Genesis. Uh, basically, he'd work like with a spoken drama, but then at a certain time, probably his librettist or recordy, his publisher would say, uh, don't we need a few tunes in here, Giacomo? And he'd say, okay, and he added mi chiamano mi mi, or visi d'arte, or those, you know, things that we now associate with the opera. Um, but he didn't have have so much pressure to do that in this case uh, and ended up, as I say, by, um, which is I think his natural process of just writing arias, which you don't realise they're arias until halfway through them and then by the time you realise they're arias, they've almost finished. Did he, as far as we know, search out kind of native or local American music as he had done for Madame Butterfly? We know that he's yeah. writing to the the wife of the Japanese ambassador in Rome asking for tunes. It's the same yeah. true here for, for, for Tulip. 
Yes, he, he, he did. And uh, the trouble is, I mean, as, as uh, any of you who've looked at Madame Butterfly sources will know, he was n notoriously indiscriminate about his authenticity. So uh, in this case, he wanted uh, an American tune uh, at one point for the miners to talk about their nostalgia. And he found this, uh, this piece of sheet music, which was actually a Zuni Indian uh, rain dance. And he thought, that'll do well for my miners, and, uh, and used it. Um, and the trouble is, some of the reviewers of the first performance knew that and, uh, and said you should be doing, you know, Swanee River or something instead. Anyway, there was a, there was a bit of a... Yeah, he was, uh, let's say, lax about his musical authenticity. <laughs> and I wonder to what extent you think that he shapes the roles of, of Millie and Dick Johnson round that astonishingly stellar couple who the opera is written for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, with um, uh, Caruso, uh, it's a perfect, it was a perfect part for Placido Domingo, this one. It's a baritonal tenor who just has that, that, those top notes as well. But um, it's a very unusual tenor part and difficult for many tenors because it's so low uh, placed most of the time, but then has these really piercing high notes. And as for Minni, uh, it's not a soprano role that Puccini sopranos tend to sing. They'll sing Tosca, they might even sing Chirundot, but they won't go for Minni because it requires so much force and power. So it's usually, as tonight, it's Brunhilde's who take the strain. P people have heard Stravinsky, Richard Strauss, um, even, I think, Debussy in the score. Do you hear, you know, Puccini's contemporaries here? Yeah, I think you do um, in the orchestra, above all. There's a tremendous... Even the best seats uh, for this performance are where you can see the orchestra. The, the level of detail that's going on in there is extraordinary. And I would say I wouldn't put this as Puccini imitating Stravinsky or imitating Debussy because there was really... There was reciprocal influence between the two as far as orchestration was concerned. It's remarkably forward-looking in all sorts of ways. Roger, thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. Do okay. please stay with us. Yeah. Thank you. Happy. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by our next pair of guests, Naomi Harvey, who, as I've said, is covering the role of Minnie, the owner of the Polka Saloon, and Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's Music Soul. Would you welcome Naomi Harvey and Andrew Smith? Naomi, you will discover now that those who come to pre-performance stores have to sing, talk for their supper before they're allowed to sing for it. Um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about, about Minnie. Is she perhaps rather harder than we sometimes think? Is she more tough than tender? I don't like to think so. She's tough in the sense that she is a, um, a woman in a man's world. And rather like Tosca, she's the only woman in the piece, apart from Wokley, lovely Wokley, who is the, uh, the native Indian girl who's sort of her housemaid, really. Um, but otherwise, it's one of those. She's the central role, the only woman on the stage. Um, and she holds her own in a man's world. So she seems tough. She's gun-toting, you know, um, and can look after herself. But she's incredibly soft and feminine and very chaste. She's never been kissed. And um, I think... Do we believe that? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, we do believe it. We do. She's kept herself pure for the right man. <laughs> and, and she thinks he's arrived in Dick Johnson. 
Do we think, as far as Dick is concerned, that she is innocent, as you said, or is she simply rather naive? I think a bit of both. I think she's naive. I think she's... Um, she knows what all the boys get up to. Um, there's lots of talk about Nina Michel Torreina, who is obviously the local prostitute, and all the guys go and sort themselves out by seeing Nina, but she doesn't have any part of that at all. But she's very aware of all of those things. So she's not innocent, but she believes in keeping herself for the right man, as I say. So it's, it's a sweetness, and she's very God-fearing as well. She does the Bible classes with the boys. She reads the Bible to them. So I think she has this tremendous faith and a belief that this is right for her, and that she's only going to give herself to the right man when he comes along. Uh, and once she has met the right man, is he's pretty quickly in her heart. Oh, yes, and she gives in very quickly. The kiss is a big moment, ladies and gentlemen, big topsy, and it's all set up beautifully, and it's a big, big snog. So, yeah, when she goes, she really goes. Uh, and we do indeed see her bedroom, too. But we'll... uh, Yes, very sweet little bedroom. Um, how do you imagine that she ever ended up here at the Polka Saloon? You must have thought, in preparing yourself for the role, what kind of prehistory does she have? How has she become the only woman in this community? Yes. I'm not sure why she's the only woman. Well, it's, it's obviously the gold rush, and I don't think there are an awful lot of women that went along to support the men. That's the whole point. They are there to try and find the gold, send the money home. There's lots of talk about sending the money home for the wives and the girlfriends and the children. Um, she was brought up in a saloon. Her parents, who were obviously long dead, um, I imagine she was an only child. There's no talk of any, any other family. So I think she's gravitated to a place that she feels comfortable in. She used to watch her parents. Daddy dealt out the cards, mummy served the food, and um, that's where she feels comfortable. So I think she's arrived in a place she knows how it works. She knows how to run a saloon. She'll feel comfortable here, and she makes it her family, having all these boys around, and she looks after them. She's very motherly with them. She looks out for them and looks after their money. So uh, she's a very trust, you know, trustworthy lady. Andrew, uh, what kind of demands, from your perspective, does Puccini make on his principal singers? What does he ask for from Mick, uh, from Dick and Minnie, and from, from the sheriff? Well, uh, a lot. <laughs> uh, Roger's already, already touched on it. Um, Jack Rance, uh, our sheriff, ultimately is the bad guy, uh, although slightly misunderstood, I think. But uh, um, with such a massive orchestra in the pit, in fact, I've been working here for nearly seven years, and I've never known the pit to be quite as full as this. I think we have about 90, 90 or so players. Um, so we've got a huge amount of noise coming from the pit. So we need three principal um, singers who can really um, face up to that challenge and, and deliver um, a fantastic vocal line over the pit and over that, that bed of sound. So from Jack Rance, we need... Uh, a baritone with a full top and a full voice with a nice blade, so we don't sympathise with him too much. Um, uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, Dick, as he likes to be called, uh, or Ramirez, as he also is known. Uh, uh, Roger's already touched on it. It needs um, a good top, although it's not the highest uh, Puccini role you'll hear. There is a, a small section of this opera you won't hear tonight that was inserted at a later date. And there is a high C, I think, in that section. But I think the highest note you'll hear tonight is B um, and a couple of fantastic B flats. But generally speaking, it's the middle of the voice um, that, where Puccini makes most of his demands. It really is a very broad um, sound that you need to deliver. And when it comes to, to Minnie, I think, I think the casting of Minnie is really almost this opera's undoing, um, because it requires 
as Rogers also said, a Brunhilde, a Wagnerian strength soprano, but who's also able to, to spin beautiful Puccini-like Italian sounds. And the combination of those two things is almost impossible to find. Uh, and we're, we're very lucky tonight, but I think it has made this opera incredibly difficult to cast. And with the size of the orchestra as well, you don't get small theatres putting this opera on. It's, unless you find a, a reorchestration or, or have it reorchestrated, it's almost impossible to put this opera on in a small or medium-sized house. Also, not only do you have three, soprano, uh, three main principal parts, but we also have a large company of small uh, character parts, mostly in Act One. Act One starts off with a 45-minute riotous um, bar scene. Um, and the demands on these character parts is huge. Uh, some of their lines are two or three words long, and they've got to get them out in time. They've got to have a full awareness of everything that's going on around them. Uh, if they go wrong, there's a domino effect. So if they go wrong, the next five guys will go wrong and have a good old chat with them in the dressing room afterwards. Um, so yeah, they've got to have um, um, rhythmic accuracy. Text has got to be fantastic. Uh, and uh, they, they, they simply cannot go wrong. But the other thing is you've got this huge sound under you. So they can't be uh, uh, tiny voices. They've all got to be fairly strong. Uh, to ride over again that, that bed of sound. Working with the singers, what can you do to, to help them through uh, this combination of extraordinary stamina for the principals and the vocal demand? And what, what's the best um, you, you can do to, to be honest, nurture them through? These days, working with singers is a rarity, actually, to be honest. In the old days, we used to have this wonderful company of, of singers, and you prepare these roles two or three months in advance. Now, you're lucky to see them before day one of, of rehearsal, because they are now all essentially uh, guest artists and are booked from, from the first day of rehearsals to the first day uh, of the, the, the run of the shows. So the only work we can really do is if they're not required for production rehearsals, we can drag them off kicking and screaming into a rehearsal room somewhere. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, they have to turn up all prepared anyway. Uh, so it's a layer of polish. The conductor would want to just to put her, her or his or her um, layer of interpretive um, skill on top of it. Um, so, but to be honest, a lot of the work, um, as you referred to this this balance between the orchestra, a lot of the work is done in a very, very short space of time, and that is when we get the orchestral rehearsals. Until then, we don't really know which um, moments of the opera are going to have balance issues. So, um, actually, the last few days, orchestral rehearsals, you don't get a chance to take them off into a room. It is simply a matter of providing them with notes, either via email or phone, and, and just being, making them aware of those moments where they really have to sing up. Um, we've done our bit in orchestral rehearsals to try and bring the, the orchestra down where necessary. But with 90 players in the pit, there's only a certain amount that can be done, to be honest. And you want them to enjoy it as well. You want the orchestra to play with the passion. If you keep telling them to be quiet all the time, they get really frustrated. So. It's a really fine balance. You want the orchestra to be at its best as well. Can you, and this is really the $64,000 question, and take a deep breath, but can you put your finger on what it is about Puccini that makes him Puccini, but also what has made these operas, even Girl of the Golden West, so extraordinarily popular? Um, oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, I think musically, as Roger said, it's, Puccini is always full of tunes. And I think this, once you get to know this opera, it is full of tunes. They are short, but you, I'm singing it all the time at home and whistling it in the bathroom. Uh, so, and, and it is this late romantic period which tugs at the heartstrings more effectively, I think, than any other um, repertoire. Um, dramatically, you don't have 
dropped pins and men dressed up as women disguised and, and gods appearing on the stage. It's, it's set in a, pretty much all the time, Puccini's set in the real world. Um, and therefore we can relate to it almost immediately, which I think really, really helps. Fine. What are you going to perform? Naomi, what are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing the, the little aria from the first act. As Andy's already said, there really aren't big set-piece arias in this well, in this opera, not for many. The tenor gets the, probably the best tune that everybody knows, but even then it's very short. So we've chosen to do the, the little Act One aria um, where Rance, um, who's always had the hots for Minnie, and he's always trying to get her on her own, but he's, um, he's told her about his frustrations and how he's ended up where he is. And then she tells him about how she really came to be um, at the saloon. It's about looking back to happy times when her parents were alive. Mm. Andrew, thank you both very, very much indeed. Um, our last guest is uh, with 
uh, is Carrie Lynn Wilson, who is the conductor of this evening. And we're very grateful to her coming and talking with us, literally um, just about one hour and 45 minutes before she really has to work. Will you please <laughs> welcome tonight's conductor, Carrie Lynn Wilson. Yeah, pleasure to join you on that beautiful <laughs> last final scene you so beautifully sung. Puccini <laughs> uh, himself uh, called uh, this, uh, Toscanini rather, called this a great symphonic poem. Oh. Is that the way that you look at the score when you, when you open it? Well, I probably shouldn't say that in front of singers, but it really is Puccini's symph symphonic work. He didn't write any symphonic works other than a few uh, trials here and there with uh, a, a preludio, this kind of thing that none of us really know well and it, Maybe it's not a, a great uh, part of his repertoire, but his operas we know well. Uh, Fanchula, perhaps not so well because it's so difficult to cast and, and it's such a complex and huge production that's very costly, which is always a factor, even, to, even in Toscanini's days. So, um, But the idea that it is a, an opera which is really carried by the orchestra from the onset. It sounds like a, a, an overture. In three minutes, we're, bomb, how do you say, it's a, in your face, how would you say, a blast yeah. of uh, energy that comes right from the orchestra and it wakes us all up to the, the sound of the orchestra and that's really the, the color that we have in, the, in our heads and in ears. And then all of these characters join the orchestra and it's it, it, a constant sort of Wagnerian sense of moving forward with the orchestral uh, colors and textures and carrying the melody so much of the time. There's a cute little story. Um, we had four orchestral, orchestral rehearsals alone, which is probably unusual because it maybe we'll get two and have to do it very quickly to prepare before the singers arrive. But four was generous because it certainly needed uh, a lot of rehearsing. Um, and at the end of one, at the very last orchestra alone, one of the players said to me, well, we don't need singers with this, do we? <laughs> Which was very cute. It, it was nice for me because I didn't have to do a lot of singing in those rehearsals. Usually you have to prepare them for the melody they're going to hear, and conductors who never have voices have to croak their way through rehearsals. But anyway. <laughs> is it fair to say, but in a kind of Almerian sense, then, that the, the drama is in the pit as much as it's on the stage? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think of the parallel between Puccini and Wagner is that connection between the text and the music. I mean, this cohesion of the nuances of every word are connected to the sound that you're hearing in the orchestra. Well, when you look at the score and when you listen as you're conducting, what seem to you the really distinctive things about this opera as opposed perhaps to other Puccini operas? Well, it's really a huge orchestra, so many, many instruments, including ones that we don't hear so often or typically in, in Puccini's music, such as, uh, well, there's a wind machine. <laughs> the, the wind machine is actually written as if it were a, an instrument. It, it's controlled dynamics. He writes phrases for the wind machine, meaning the volume, and he, he measures that within the phrases with the orchestra. It's a tuned wind machine, by chance. Not tuned, <laughs> not quite that far. <laughs> um, but that's off stage, and so that is also an instrument which we have to treat uh, musically, so to speak. And um, just the, the fact that the, the orchestra, every single player is involved. I think it's a, a part that 
almost all the musicians can take home because it, there's so much to do. They're all exposed. Um, they, we have two harps, we have celeste, a glockenspiel, a huge percussion section. Um, the strings typically play huge lush melodies, but are, have a lot of solos as well. So it's just, they're very involved. It's like a concerto for orchestra. At times. There's, there's also that wonderful moment at the end of Act One where the chorus is part of the orchestra as well. That's a great, yeah. a great also moment in the opera where there's a humming chorus, very much kind of like the end of Act Two in Butterfly, but it's used as a, a, a background sort of extra color, an added color to the melody in the orchestra, which is accompanying and playing with the art, the the melody of the tenor. And it's so beautiful. It's very subtle. You almost will be unaware at first. What's that noise? And there was another instrument that was is written to go with it called the phonica. Phonica is this old, maybe some of you know what this is. It's an old instrument that uh, sounded like a... They have one at the Royal Opera House, as a matter of fact. We should try and get that and just put it on display, because nobody knows what that is. And uh, But today it's substituted by the vibraphone. Do you have a technical yeah, I mean, description? Uh, I think Ricordi tried to make one a few years ago uh, and discovered that Ashley Puccini had invented the uh, ding-dong doorbell, you know, uh, before his time, because it's a it's very curious sound. Yeah. So... Ideally, he wanted this sort of quirky sound that would resemble the Western saloon type uh, sound, but it was so out of tune, and it went with this gorgeous melody, so it, it was inappropriate. So now we use a very nicely tuned vibraphone with it, but listen for that nuance at the end of Act One. You've talked about, about colours in the score. What, what seem to be the dominant colours in the score? Dominant colours. Well, it's very impressionistic at times, isn't it? It just... It, runs a huge range of, of textures. And um, I would say that we just have these very full orchestral moments where everybody's playing fanfare, fanfare use of the brass, uh, going with the percussion, gorgeous soaring string melodies, beautifully exposed woodwind solos, harp is constantly involved, it's like a concerto for harp. Uh, but then we have these textures such as, well, the end of act two is a famous card scene. If you've done your homework, you'll, you'll know what that's about. There's a lot of tension. And Buccini is a genius when he writes this, uh, it's, it's sort of like a vamp in the, the basses are using a pizzicato vamp. And this is like the pounding of Minnie's heart as she's doing this very suspenseful card game. Which is very yeah. real. You've got to get the cards dealt and you've got to do it all at a certain time. And it's quite, <laughs> quite real in the orchestra too because the basses are losing a lot of blood holding this pizzicato forever. I look at them after and they go, <sighs> and then they finish, literally. Caroline, I asked, I asked Roger, I'd like to ask you whether you think that Puccini is trying to strike out in a new direction with this opera, trying to run a different kind of opera from the kinds you've written before. We talked about the shortness of the arias, you know, mm -hmm. the, the fact they're over before you've already, rec before you recognize mm -hmm. them in a way. Well, he'd already written Butterfly, Bohem and Tosca, and he was looking for something very new and different in terms of the story. And he's such a fantastic integrity when it comes to the, the theater, the play itself. So I think it was more of him finding the language that would best represent the American West. And he was very careful in his descriptions of this opera when it was just coming out that he said, this is not an American opera. This is an American story based on Belasco. But it's 
the Italian melodic language. He wanted to make that very clear, that he was proud of his, you know, melody. And uh, so I think that it was just, he was finding, well, as he always does when he uh, was researching for Turandot, for example, and for, for Butterfly, he was looking at the, the culture and the traditional harmonies, melodies, tunes, folklore, anything he could grab of the, the place that he was talking about, or Japan or uh, so America, and he was, Trying to, he had researched very carefully the melodies that would come from that uh, culture. So he was integrating that in the score, and uh, so that's why I'm not sure it was a con conscious uh, way to go forwards, but it was just an extension of his his language. He said himself, yes, it was his most most modern opera so far. So you said you had the luxury of four full orchestral rehearsals. Yeah. I mean, that would suggest that the real problem we've talked about, it's a little bit interesting to hear your own view um, from the pit, that the balance between the stage and the pit is one of the, the principal challenges here it for the conductor. It absolutely is, because when you have a force of 90 people with one voice, you can imagine that a forte has a whole different context. <laughs> forte of the trumpet, forte of the 14 first violins. We have to be very aware of, of what that forte is in reference to what's on the stage. So it's, it's a very, uh, very careful rehearsing for this piece, yes. It doesn't just go. It's a lot of uh, shaping and, 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 and careful attention to these balances, to never lose the word, because that's the crime in opera. <laughs> in your journey through this new production, of Gullis, and what kind of discoveries do you think you've made about the score, about the piece itself? Well, I credit this all to Richard Jones, who's such a fantastic director. The way he takes care of every word is what I consider we do as musicians. We take care of every note and where it belongs in the phrase. There's never a moment in the process of uh, Richard Jones's rehearsal uh, schedule that he is not paying attention to detail. Uh, he, he looks at the big picture, he's got the small picture, and how he combines it and works with the singers has given me so much insight into the drama. And uh, for example, in the first act, it's so complex in terms of the interaction with many, the minors, the minors with the, the back, but the bad guys, it's very, very detailed work that he did. So it's a fascinating process. And for me to see that, I think Puccini would have adored that too, because he wrote at the premiere about the process with Toscanini and the director and how careful it was, the, um, the, the relationship, the marriage between music and stage. He was very concerned with that. So I felt that that was the most satisfying thing about this, uh, uh, this uh, new production. It's just a it was a complete marriage between the music and the stage for us. It sounds as if you and Richard got on very well for the work there as well. I adore him, yeah. <laughs> was this the first time you worked together? Yes, yeah, first time. And, 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 and what, 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 made, what made the marriage gel, so to speak, at the very beginning? I think we had mutual respect. And, and I mean, once you have that, it, it, it is a lot about chemistry too, I would say. I mean, there are artists who, might have different opinions, things, but it's it's that ability to communicate with one another and have arguments and things. Not that we ever did, because he's so wonderful. But uh, it's it's about chemistry too, I think, personality. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. We have a little time in hand. If any of you would like to ask questions of any of our four distinguished guests.
please put your hand up. Uh, there is a roving mic about to rove. Uh, catch my eye and uh, we'll, we'll make sure you go. Who would like to ask a question? In the front row. Will this um, uh, show be uh, taken abroad, for instance, to the United States of America or all the Metropolitan Opera House? I don't know the answer. This is collaboration, isn't it? Yes, it's a co-production with Santa Fe Opera, which runs in the summer. And then maybe other people will jump on board in the future. I'm not sure how that works, but that's a John Barry question, I think. <laughs> there can't be many uh, girls of the Golden West traveling around the world anyway. At the moment. No, certainly not. Yeah. Another question. <laughs> to what extent is the English text uh, a straight translation of the uh, original Italian? as opposed to using the original play? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, we went with Puccini's text immediately because that is where he has so carefully taken a la parola, the, the word, with what musical shape it goes with. So first you work, we should have the, uh, the translator here, but I could see how she was very careful in maintaining the rhythmic uh, structure and keeping syllables, for example, with the, the rhythm, um, with doing a direct translation, with kind of getting uh, a word that would best represent uh, without being direct at times. So, but, so she gave us, uh, let's say, the, the base, the absolute first, uh, how do you say, draft, and then we, in the rehearsal process, this is where it's so fascinating, we, had uh, Sue and, and all the other singers who were saying, well, that doesn't really fit in my voice. Can we change that word? And then Richard and I would say, well, that doesn't really work with a drama, does it? Because sometimes you can't uh, do a direct translation. And the nuance in the Italian was so much far better than what we had to work with in English. So it was a process. It was a six-week process getting that. Uh, up to the last day, we were still making changes with the words. I think uh, one thing uh, <clears throat> that that is clear is the, the Italian libretto is a very strange beast in all sorts of ways. It's very antiquated Italian uh, in all sorts of ways, very flowery, literary Italian. Uh, and there's no doubt that this translation puts it back into the world of Belasco much more than it would be uh, the world of, of that rather old-fashioned, loving the subjunctive mm -hmm. Italian libretto. But it's very singer-friendly, though. I speak personally, obviously, but it, but it is very singer-friendly. It's, it's, we've all found that, haven't we? It really works, and the rhythms and things sit very naturally. Just the American accent that's I think, a problem. Yeah, I was. I think the 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 thing which is you know which would be interesting to know what you think about is um, it will seem quite radical to a lot of people actually that everyone's singing with an American accent. Now it sort of makes sense, okay? If they were singing the Italian libretto, they wouldn't be singing that with an American accent. Uh, it's a it's an interesting point that I don't know whether you came into those discussions early, but. Um, it was uh, a question for me, would you consider an American Western accent, like Hollywood Western films? I thought it was a fantastic idea. It just, mm. not because I'm from North America, but just because it would, it fits a little more in the character of the piece. And, and, your, and your ear settles into it with pleasure very rapidly, I think, in, Absolutely. in, in production. Yeah. We've time for one more question, ladies and gentlemen. We have one at the back here. It's the last question. Yeah, a, a quickie. 
most of Puccini's been turned into musicals. Which musical would you say this opera has been turned into? Is it Annie Get Your Gun? Oh, look, we can. Uh, is it nearer Oklahoma? I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah, Annie Get Your Gun, uh, whatever. I mean, that's one of the things with the American accents that it will remind people of musicals because of that uh, straight away. And you, but I, I think it's extraordinarily convincing, actually, to do it with the Americans. But it's a very brave thing to do on an operatic stage because it reminds one of, of musical theatre. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have a go at other musicals, apart from Andy Get Your Gun Oklahoma? There aren't really other any American Western. I think one one bride for one brother, brother. yeah. <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of our lot of time. Can I um, do some hazards first? Um, most of you will be sitting on a little sheet of paper which will give you details of the next set of pre-performance talks. We shall very much hope to welcome you here upstairs in the balcony bar for them. Um, Please do stay in the house if you'd like a drink, but the drinks will be not yet in the Polka Saloon. You'll have to wait till 7 o'clock for that. But the bar downstairs in the uh, dress circle will be open for drinks. In the meantime, thank you to all of you for being here. But, of course, the largest thank you to our four guests. Thank you all very much indeed.